Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 227. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. I do hope everyone is fine and dandy. Give you a little heads up. What's coming in today's show? We have Science News by Mr. J.J. Campanella. Then we have a little introduction by our good friend John Joseph Adams about his new anthology, Under the Moons of Mars. Then we have one of those stories from that collection, Tobias Bakel and his Tinker of Warhoon. Then rounding up, we have another fact article, Theatre of the Mind, Paul Finch. That is show 227. Do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. Now, just before we get into the show, got a little apology and a little kind of heads up, a little heads up to David Stefan. And actually, you know, sometimes, I, honestly, I can't see the wood for the trees. And it was David that kind of dropped us an email and just pointed out a few little things, which I thought were, you know, when I read them back to myself, I thought, God, David's got it spot on there. It's all to do with Starship Titanic, you know, and we had Tony on there, Tony Custard, who was going to do like a radio play, you know, and go ahead with it. We've been trying always to kind of find, to get actually copyright for it by, you know, Terry Jones. This was the story Terry Jones and Douglas Adams penned. And Tony said, you know, we'll just go ahead and do it. It's all kind of voluntary. Do you know, like say Starship Sova, that's the whole ethos of Starship Sova, the shows and that. So there's, you know, there's nothing kind of wrong with it. David dropped us a line and, you know, and I was quite excited. I was like, oh, get, we'll, do, we'll do this. This will be great, you know, because I'm always just thinking like the, the show and, you know, trying to kind of big, make it bigger and better and everything like that. David Stefan dropped us a line and he just put it so plainly, you know, and I thought, God, he's right there. Just David said, you know, 
it is in the end still copyright to Terry Jones. You know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and when you come to think about it, it is. You know, and he says it doesn't matter what which way you look at it. You're doing it voluntarily. You're giving it out for free. That story, you know, that kind of little Starship Titanic is still the property of Terry Jones. And it was it was David though. And hats, David. Honestly, thank you for like pointing that out to us. David said, you know, authors have been you know, in a way, good the Starship's over. That's how we, we do our shows, just by the, you know, the, the kindness of these authors. And, you know, I'm, I get the copyright. And I'm always saying, you know, don't forget, copyright is this and that authors. And, you know, I'm always, like, protective that way. And then, I, you know, I realise, well, I'm I'm not. You know what I mean? That was just a total blatant abuse of my kind of rules and my ethos. You know what I mean? Hats off to David. He said it bluntly. Tony, if you carry on, I'll, you know, I'll be forced to not to listen to you sure and i went you know what that's exactly what am i thinking of and i emailed tony who was, who was going ahead of doing it. and i said you know if you can get this you know this kind of copyright sorted out i'll still support you but up to now i've had to kind of back off and i thought like i said the writers have been so kind to starship sofa you know and, and there's me saying this you know this copyright's theirs and everything and then on the other hand i'm there backtracking and trying to do a little fiddly one. And I thought, so the fact article, Starship Titanic, if Tony comes back and says, yes, we've got, you know, we have got copyright, that's fantastic. We'll go ahead, you know, and do a radio play. But up until now, then we're going to put that on hold and wait. I'm not going to kind of really, you know, publicise it anymore because we need to kind of distance ourselves really until Tony can come back and say, yes, it's okay. So again, David, I just want to, you know, I want to apologise to everyone who kind of listened to that show and thought, that's a bit wrong, Tony. Because, like I say, I didn't even think twice. You know, I just kind of bundled into it and I thought, that would be great, yes. You know what I mean? What a great kind of ride, roller coaster. But then, thinking about it, do you know what I mean? I shouldn't have done that. So, totally sorry about that. If anyone was upset, do you know what I mean? Yes, please. If you feel you have to kind of leave the good ship so far because of the, the, that kind of those ideas I was floating around a couple of weeks ago all I can say is sorry do you know what I mean um, I have changed my tune so apologies I hope will will be okay so first off then let's kick off with our good friend Mr JJ Campanella with his science news Jim sir Greetings and salutations, excellent listeners, and welcome to this February 2012 Science News Update. I'm your host for this astounding, surreal, and endlessly titillating science podcast, Jim Campanella. This is the first month in a while that I will be able to just start the podcast without any preface. Let's just get into it. First up, I didn't expect that there would be another update on exoplanets just a month after my last update in January. You may remember that I told you guys about the first Earth-sized exoplanets reported by Dr. David Charbonneau orbiting around the star Kepler-20. It was an important find, but those new planets in the Kepler system were all too close to the actual star to be in the life zone around it. And so, they were too hot for life, and or were not likely to have any water on them. Well, a new report was published at the beginning of February in Astrophysical Journal Letters, that has discovered a planet smack dab in the life zone on the star GJ667C. The article was written by astrophysicist Dr. Guillaume Anglata Escuda of the University of Göttingen 
have his team at the High Accuracy Radial Velocity Precision Searcher, known as HARPS, in Switzerland. That is one of the major centers for exoplanet searches, by the way. The new paper reports three planets in the system that is only 22 light-years from Earth in the Scorpius constellation. Dr. Steve Vogt of University of California, Santa Cruz, and one of the co-authors of the paper says of the planets, quote, The closest in planet zooms around the star once every 7.2 days, making it a well-lit charcoal briquette. The second planet, the one of interest in the life zone, is a relative dawdler taking 28.15 days to complete an orbit. And the third signature seems to be a planet on a 75-day orbit, but it could also just be an artifact of the star's activity. Unquote. The star system is not like Earth's insofar as GJ667C is a red dwarf and not a yellow sun. A red dwarf, if you don't remember, is dimmer and cooler than Sol is. Because it is dimmer and cooler, that means that the habitable life zone is much closer to the star itself than we're used to in our own solar system. It means that planets that are snuggled much closer in are not as hot as they would be in a yellow star system, but they're still in the life zone. Unfortunately, the news is not quite as exciting as it could be. The second planet of the GJ667C system is not an Earth-sized planet. It's another one of those exoplanets that fall into the super-Earth category. It's 4.5 times bigger than Earth, or even a bit more. The authors of the paper are cautious about one thing. They do remind everyone that until we get better and newer instrumentation in the future, there is no way to actually know more about the likelihood of life on that planet in the GJ667C star system or others like it. It may or may not be habitable, just because it is in the life zone. But, quote, it's difficult to determine habitability without knowing the planet's composition or anything about its atmosphere and how much of the star's energy is absorbed, unquote. However, given their less-than-optimistic attitude, the authors still insist that finding this planet in a life zone is just the beginning and there will be lots more coming up in the near future. I'll certainly keep you posted on that. Next up, coffee. What else can this miracle drink do? Well, actually, it's been known for quite a while that uh, heavy coffee drinkers have a reduced chance of getting diabetes type 2. Papers over the past decade or so have demonstrated quite clearly, and without doubt, that people who drink four or more cups of coffee each day have up to a 50% lower risk of the disease, with each additional cup associated with a further 7% drop in risk. So the question over the last 10 years has been, what exactly is the connection between coffee and diabetes? It does seem like rather an odd one. Dr. Biao Cheng and his colleagues at Wuhan University in China just published a paper in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry late December on how this effect actually works. The researchers found that coffee influences the misfolding of a protein in the pancreas called human amyloid polypeptide, HIAPP. This protein is implicated in causing type 2 diabetes. According to the paper, certain compounds in coffee significantly inhibited the formation of this toxic amyloid compound, which likely explains the lowered risk of diabetes type 2 in coffee lovers. Here is just a quick reminder about protein structure and misfolding. Proteins are made of long strands of molecules called amino acids. There are 20 standard amino acids that are used in every organism on the face of the earth. Proteins function in part by having a very specific folded structure when all the different amino acids in a strand chemically interact. 
if a protein does not fold in that particular way, then it will probably lose its activity and not function. Hence, the implication of protein misfolding in this coffee paper. The researchers examined the various active components of coffee to see what might account for the anti-diabetes effect. Coffee extracts have three major active components, caffeine, which we all know about, caffeic acid, and chlorogenic acid. In this study, the effects of these major coffee components were studied, as well as dihydrocaffeic acid, which is a major metabolite of chlorogenic acid and caffeic acid. The study found that caffeic acid and chlorogenic acid significantly suppress the formation of HIAPP oligomers, whereas caffeine showed no significant effect on oligomerization. That last part kind of makes sense since other drinks like Coke or Pepsi or black tea, which do have caffeine, have never been shown to reduce the risk of diabetes. Yes, that includes Jolt Cola, which I suspect has no health benefits at all. So the next time somebody annoys you about your coffee addiction, just tell them that you are getting your daily recommended doses of caffeic and chlorogenic acids. Next story. In my past science podcast over the last several years, you may have heard me say that the $1,000 human genome was near. Well, it has finally arrived. It is here, and the world will be changing soon. Well, for better or worse, I don't know which, but the game is certainly going to be changing. Two competing companies in the last month have started offering for sale machines capable of sequencing a human genome in 24 hours rather than weeks or months. Illumina Inc. and Life Technologies Corp. both announced the launch of their respective machines, each capable of speed reading a genome in a single day. And the Life Technologies machine will do that for $1,000 per genome. Yes, you heard that right. Your whole genome sequenced in just one day for just $1,000. The Illumina HiSeq 2500 will allow researchers to generate 120 gigabases of data. That's a 40-fold coverage of the genome. That means that the machine can sequence a single 3-gigabase human genome 40 times in only 27 hours. That is a significant increase in speed over the previous model. The popular HiSeq 2000 machine made by Illumina, which sequences up to five human genomes, that's about 600 gigabases of data, simultaneously over 10 days. But the charming and attractive new 2500 model comes with a hefty price tag of $740,000. So no, it's not likely I'll be picking one up from my lab very soon. The Life Technologies Ion Proton Sequencer is slightly more my style for the price and is significantly lower at $149,000. Life Technologies machine will sequence an entire human genome with a 20 to 30 fold coverage in just a day for, as I said, $1,000. That seems like a pretty good deal. Life Technologies $1,000 estimated price per genome includes the consumables needed for template preparation, amplification, and sequencing, as well as the cost of the solid-state sequencing chips that the machine employs. I suspect that Illumina has not gotten to the price break of $1,000 yet per genome because they have continually declined to disclose a cost per genome for their HiSeq 2500. You cannot find it anywhere in their literature, and if you call the company and are not a serious buyer, they will not discuss such costs with you. I guess my lack of three-quarters of a million dollars makes me not a serious buyer. 
Remember that the magical $1,000 per genome number is important because that's the number that most insurance companies have agreed that they will be happy to pay for their clients to have their genome sequenced. The sequencing industry reports that the cost of sequencing has dropped 33% per quarter since 2007. Sequencing is becoming so cheap that its cost could soon be the least of genomics research expenses, which include the cost of acquiring the sample, preparing the sample, and post-sequencing bioinformatic analysis of your genome. And remember, it is not cheap to analyze 3 billion base pairs for deleterious effects, even if it is cheap to get those 3 billion base pairs in the first place. After my soapbox speech last month in favor of using adult stem cells and disease therapy over embryonic stem cells, you would think that the next story would just thrill me. Uh, Well, thrill is not quite the correct word. Horrify, perhaps, but not thrill. It was reported in the news section of the journal Biotechniques that an assistant professor at the Medical University of South Carolina has been accused by federal authorities of using university resources to produce stem cells for illegal treatment. The U.S. Federal Drug Administration has been arresting a variety of people over the last year for selling illicit stem cell therapies. For the first time, they have charged an actual medical researcher at a university. Dr. Vincent DeMai, an assistant professor in the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at the Medical University of South Carolina, is one of four men named in recent indictments. The federal indictments charged the group with operating a ring that offered unauthorized stem cell treatments for a whole set of diseases, cancer, Lou Gehrig's disease, MS, and a bunch of other autoimmune diseases, The government says that DeMai used university facilities to produce stem cells from umbilical cord blood collected at a maternity clinic in Del Rio, Texas. The stem cells that were collected were then sold illegally by a company called Global Laboratories, headquartered in Scottsdale, Arizona. Also named as defendants in the case are Jesus Alberto Ramon, a midwife at a maternity clinic where the umbilical cord material was allegedly procured, Lawrence Stowe, charged with promoting and selling stem cells, cures, and Francesco Morales, an unlicensed physician. The FDA says that Morales performed the procedures at a clinic in Mexico and falsely represented to the public that he was a physician licensed to practice medicine in the U.S. The Medical University of South Carolina said it first got word in 2010 that one of its faculty members may have been involved in an illicit stem cell operation and that it's been investigating since it first got word of this. Now the school has announced that it has, quote, placed Dr. Demai on administrative leave pending the resolution of the matter. His laboratory and office have been locked and secured, unquote. The medical school also made a public statement that, quote, the federal authorities have affirmed that the alleged stem cell work was conducted without knowledge of the medical university and they made no allegations of any inappropriate activity on the part of the university, unquote. Sick people get desperate, and these medical researchers taking financial advantage of distressed people is rather horrifying. Even if these guys were doing the treatments with the best of intentions of helping their fellow human beings, it's still wrong from almost every scientific perspective that you can think of to use stem cell therapy if you're uncertain of the results. I refer you to the recent Rise of the Planet of the Apes movie, James Franco's lack of scientific forethought led to dire consequences, which I will not spoil for those of you who haven't seen the movie. I don't believe that Demai and company's work would have led to such a calamitous end, but 
it could have potentially worsened lives where suffering was already present. Even putting the best face on it, these people were just plain negligent. Probably the worst part about the whole situation is that it may just be a hint of a whole hidden industry out there taking advantage of sick people that we really know very little or nothing about. Next story. What is the oldest living organism? Well, that may seem like a simple question, but it may not be quite as simple as it sounds. Most people would tell you that the bristlecone pine in the western mountains of North America are the most ancient organisms alive. That is, on the order of 4,500 to 5,000 years old. That means, by the way, that some of those pines have actually been on Earth throughout all of recorded human history, which is a bit sobering. Now, if you define the oldest organisms by the oldest organism which has continually been alive by cloning itself over massive amounts of time, well, then the bristlecone pine is just a piker. An article published this week in the biology journal Plus One suggests that the seagrass, Posidonia oceanica, may be the oldest living clonal organism on the face of the earth. The lead author on the report is Dr. Sophie Arnaud Heond of the Universidad do Algarve in Portugal. The paper reports that clonal Posidonia oceanica plants were found all over the Mediterranean Sea. The distances between populations range from meters to hundreds of kilometers. These plants flower rather rarely, and most of their reproduction occurs by putting out rhizomes and spreading through a meadow non-sexually. The researchers used genetic markers to examine 1,544 samples from a total of 40 locations across the Mediterranean Sea. Their analysis of all the common markers revealed the presence with a prevalence of 3.5 to 8.9% of very large clones spreading over 1 to 15 square kilometers at the different locations. Based on growth estimates of these very slow-growing plants that seldom flower, the authors estimated that it would take anywhere between 12,000 to 100,000 years to cover the areas that some of the beds of seagrass is actually covered. The authors got their results by combining genetics, demography, and model-based calculations. Since their methods and results are quite new, they question our present knowledge and understanding of the spreading capacity and lifespan of plant clones. They say in the paper that, quote, these findings call for further research on life history traits associated with clonality, considering their possible ecological and evolutionary implications, unquote. The implication of the age of these grass clones suggests that the original clone from which all of the present-day clones arose was out in the Mediterranean while Homo sapiens were still mostly isolated to their original birthplace in Africa, and Neanderthals still roamed the earth. Now that is pretty ancient. The last story of the night concerns zebras, and the basic physical feature of zebras that every one of us has known since we were toddlers. Zebras have stripes. But have you ever wondered why zebras have stripes? As with most things in nature, we often just accept them as we see them. Elephants have big trunks, giraffes have long necks, rhinos have big horns on their noses, etc. It's very often only children who ask why. Why does an elephant have a trunk? Why do giraffes have long necks, but hippos have short necks? You get my drift. But why stripes? What advantage do stripes have for a zebra? Certainly black and white is not a camouflage thing. 
black and white doesn't exactly blend in on the African savanna. Or, well, maybe does it. Maybe not if you're hiding from a lion, but the stripes may help out with other predators. Where am I going with this? Dr. Gabor Horvath and colleagues from Hungary and Sweden have published a paper this month in the Journal of Experimental Biology that may finally explain the purpose of the zebra's stripes, as well as other stripes on animals in Africa. Horseflies deliver wicked bites. They carry diseases and distract grazing animals from feeding. According to the paper, these insects are attracted to horizontally polarized light because reflections from water are horizontally polarized, and aquatic insects use this phenomenon to identify stretches of water where they can mate and lay eggs. However, blood-sucking female horseflies are also guided to victims by linearly polarized light reflected from their hides. The paper points out that horseflies are more attracted and prefer dark horses to white horses. The paper then goes on to point out that developing zebra embryos start out with dark skin, but then go on to develop white stripes. The team wondered whether the zebra's stripy hide might have evolved to disrupt their attractive dark skins and make them less appealing to ravenous, blood-sucking flies. The team tested how attractive the flies found black and white striped patterns of varying widths, densities, and angles of the stripes. They did this by painting white stripes on dark surfaces around a horse farm and looking to see what attracted the flies the most. Onto the painted surface, they trapped the attracted flies with oil and glue. The paper reports that the patterns attracted fewer flies as the stripes became narrower, with the narrowest stripes attracting the fewest flies. The team then tested the attractiveness of white, dark, and striped models of horses. The researchers hypothesized that the striped horse would attract an intermediate number of flies between the white and dark models. However, they were surprised to find that the striped model was the least attractive of all. When the researchers went back and measured the stripe widths and polarization patterns of light reflected from real zebra hides, they found that the zebra's pattern correlated well with the patterns that were least attracted to horseflies. Here is their conclusion from the paper. Quote, We conclude that zebras have evolved a coat pattern in which the stripes are narrow enough to ensure minimum attractiveness to tabited flies, that is, horseflies. The selection pressure for striped coat patterns as a response to blood-sucking dipterin parasites is probably high in Africa, unquote. These results would also explain the striped pattern on a quagga. What is a quagga, you say? Well, it's an extinct brown and white relative of the zebra. This may be a bit of a detour, but the quagga was originally classified as an individual species in 1778. Over the next 200 years or so after that, Many other zebras were described by naturalists and explorers. Because of the great variation in coat patterns, no two zebras are alike, I guess like snowflakes, taxonomists were left with a great number of described species and no easy way to tell which of these were actual species, which were subspecies, and which were simply natural variants of the same species. So they weren't quite sure about whether the quagga was a species or not at that point. Well, long before that confusion about quaggas was sorted out, the quagga became a victim of extinction. It was hunted regrettably for its meat, hide, and to preserve feed for domesticated stock, which the poor quagga stole from. 
The last quagga was probably shot in the late 1870s, and the last specimen in captivity, a mare, died on August 12, 1883, at the Natura Artis Magistra Zoo in Amsterdam. Because of the confusion between different zebra species, the quagga was extinct before anybody even realized officially that it was actually a separate species. But now, even though the quagga is long gone, we know why it had a striped hide. Very sad. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care. Keep pounding down that java, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go, James. Fantastic, sir. So next up is a little introduction just to, and it's by John Joseph Adams as well, a little introduction to his new anthology, which I hope you will go out there and treat yourself to. I think John Joseph Adams is kind of one of the best now anthologizers out there. He's got that knack of directing these little thoughts. You know, it's not like saying the best of this and the best of that. It's coming up with these kind of themes and these ideas to make his anthologies good. That's, you know, oh, great ideas. And this Moons and Mars is just, you know, like John Carter and everything like that. Fantastic. So, John, sir. Hi, this is John Joseph Adams. My new anthology, Under the Moons of Mars, New Adventures on Barsoom, depicts 14 all-new adventures set in the fantastical world of Barsoom, created by Edgar Rice Burroughs. I'm pleased to present this podcast of Tobias Buckell's story, A Tinker of Warhoon, to Starship Sofrina's listeners. When Edgar Rice Burroughs published A Princess of Mars in 1912, he gave birth to the iconic character of John Carter and his wondrous vision of Mars. With this setting and character, Burroughs created something that has enthralled generation after generation of readers. Now, a hundred years after the series first debuted in print, new generations of readers, thanks in part to the new Disney film, are still finding and discovering the adventures of John Carter for the first time. Edgar Rice Burroughs, who also authored the Tarzan and Pellucidar series and dozens of other books, wrote only ten Barsoom novels, plus one collection of two stories. Yet anyone who's read the novels cannot help but imagine the plentiful adventures of John Carter and his ilk that were never catalogued by Burroughs. The last Barsoom story, written by Burroughs, Skeleton Men of Jupiter, was published in the magazine Amazing Stories in 1943, intended to be one of a series of short stories that would later be collected into book form. It was the last ever published by Burroughs, however, and legions of fans have been left waiting for the new adventures of John Carter ever since. Until now. In the first Barsoom novel, A Princess of Mars, Confederate soldier John Carter finds himself mysteriously transported to Mars, or, as the natives call it, Barsoom. He quickly discovers that Barsoom is quite a hostile place, with many different races of aggressive warlike beings. Fortunately for Carter, however, due to the stronger gravity of Earth, he has what amounts to superpowers on Mars. He is stronger, faster, and can endure more than the natives, which, combined with his skill at swordplay, makes him a formidable foe, or a valuable ally. In A Princess of Mars, John Carter escapes the green men of the Warhoon Horde, only to find himself lost and starving in the desert. He seeks aid at a giant building, four miles square and 200 feet high, and is allowed inside by a wizened old man. The man tells Carter that the building is an atmosphere plant that supplies air to all of Barsoom, and that the doors can be opened only through the use of a secret code, and that this code is revealed only to two men on Barsoom at any given time. At this point, John Carter reads the man's mind and learns the code. As the two of them say goodnight, John Carter again reads the man's mind and learns that the man intends to murder him in his sleep, since the man now suspects that Carter has learned too much. 
Carter escapes the building, and much later, when the atmosphere plant fails, he's able to use his knowledge of the secret code to spring the doors open and save all of Barsoom. A Tinker of Warhoon shows this key event in Barsoomian history from an entirely different point of view, that of a very unusual and talented young member of the Warhoon. I hope you enjoy the story. To order the book or just to learn more about the anthology, please visit johnjosephadams.com slash Barsoom. I put a link on to John's site and to Under the Moons of Mars. Like you say, that guy here, John Joseph Adams, should be winning a Hugo. Some great ideas and some great stories he puts together. So this is one of the stories from that book, A Tinker of Wahoon by Tobias Bakel. As you know, Tobias which was great. We had him on a couple of weeks ago, or a few months ago now, doing his little Kickstarter project for the Apocalypse Ocean. That actually is due and... Apparently it's all going full steam ahead, due July the 2012. But he's also got his new one coming out in, well, actually now, February 2012, Arctic Rising. He had Halo, Sly Mongoose, Ragamuffin and Crystal Rain. Oodles of short stories and we're very kind. Toby's been very kind and let Starship Silver play some of them as well. And I've got a, a couple more as well. So do pop over there and see Tobias Bakel. It is narrated by Raja Khanna. Raja has been on Starship Sofa a couple of times as well. The last one Raj narrated was show number 163, Saladin Armin's story, The Faithful Soldier Prompted. So the Starship Sofa is very proud to present. A Tinker of Warhoon by Tobias S. Bakel. Get up, snarled three-armed Gar Kofin, silhouetted against the light of Barsoom's two moons. Kaz slowly rose, brushing sand off his gun belt. It is foolish to stand when someone is shooting at you, he said sullenly. They weren't shooting at you, Garkofen said, cuffing him lightly on the side of the head. It was a warning shot. We found the Jedwar's party. Kaz looked back toward their wagon. He'd rather be back inside, poring over the insides of an electric rangefinder. His people, the War Hoons, were unpredictable and violent, Kaz had always felt. Even more violent than their mortal enemies, the Tharks. They'd spent the last few days watching men fight to the death in the arena in the ruins of what had once been some glorious city. And now they were moving across the wastes once more, looking for new victims and plunder. Kaz hated this. He'd rather be fixing things. Machines didn't trick you. Machines didn't have an inscrutable warrior code that always seemed to end with bloodshed. Machines didn't attack you for accidentally bumping into them. Or yell at you for ducking when bullets flew. They could cuff him as much as they wanted, or call him coward. He wasn't about to stand still and be shot. Any other young runt of a war hoon with a single name like Kaz would have been killed long ago for thinking this way. But unlike any of his kind, Kaz could fix things, weapons in particular, and so he was tolerated by his tribe. But more importantly, he was tolerated by Gar Kofan. Gar Kofan did that mostly because he couldn't give up his only apprentice. Garkofan was old, and one of his eyes was milky white and blind from an old duel. He stood hunched over, and he was missing an entire arm, leaving him with only three. His remaining hands now shook whenever he tried to fix small machines, and it was difficult for him to see small things, even when they were right in front of him. Kaz knew that Garkofan needed him more than he needed Garkofan. Garkofan was really a warrior, not a tinker, and the machines often frustrated and stumped him and left him cursing and throwing them against the wall. Kaz was the far better tinker because he understood the machines. 
With Gar Kofan's past reputation as a fighter and his skill, he had taken the name of Kofan in the usual manner by killing a Kofan Jedwar. They had built a good life in Warhoon, and so, although Gar Kofan had only three arms and was going blind, Gar Kofan would cheerfully kill anyone who threatened Kaz. Garkofan had turned to tinkering with machines and fixing the electric rangefinders on rifles after he'd lost his arm. He had taught Kaz all he knew since the day two years ago when he found Kaz loitering around his wagon and asking questions about how everything worked. At first, Garkofan had thrown him out of the wagon and told him to go away. But when Kaz showed a knack for fixing things, Garkofan took him on as an apprentice. Soon, Kaz had gained a spot in the back of the wagon to sleep on a knife and a pistol of his own, and food. And life was... acceptable, Kaz thought. At least when people weren't shooting at him. The Jedwar, Av Kanan, had designs on becoming a Jed, if possible. He was always roaming the wastes, looking for new conquests or new ways to raise his stature. One day, everyone knew Av Kanan would challenge a Jed and kill him to take his position. Gar Kofan, Kaz asked as he followed behind. Avkanan never comes out here to the northwest. It's filled with Zidangan or helium scouts who would strike at us from the air. Gar Kofan glanced up. Then there must be something important enough to bring him out here. And that was all he would say about that. In the rocks among an outcropping nearby, a small council had gathered around Avkanan who gestured at them to approach. Hurry up, cripple, he snarled at Gar Kofan. We don't have much time before the attack. Kaz climbed up the ridge behind Gar Kofan and Av Kanan, struggling to keep up. Even infirm and half-blind, Gar Kofan's days as a warrior left him energetic and strong enough to outpace him. When Kaz managed to catch up, Av Kanan was pointing in the distance at a canal and the high trees that ran along its sides, and at the massive building that squatted there. Two hundred feet high and dominating the landscape for miles, it was a building that brought a smile to Kaz's lips. Unlike the city of Warhoon, Stripped down, crumbling, reused by a people who had no idea how it had even been built, this building gleamed with purpose. It had been built, and it had been maintained, and whoever had built it, their craft, their purpose, seemed to call out to Kaz. The Red Men don't want us out here, near this thing, Avkanan said, which means there must be great riches inside. Look at how massive it is. They all stared for a long, silent moment. There was only one doorway in that I can perceive, Avkanan said mildly, breaking the silence. Do you want us to try and tinker the doorway open? Gar Kofan asked. Kaz saw straight away this was not Avkanan's intent, not if he was planning to attack so soon. I want you to set the detonator for a very large explosion that will disable the doors, Avkanan said. You will throw it inside that structure when the doors open. There is a guard or a keeper who comes out once in a great while. The next time he does, we will be nearby to throw the bomb inside, thus wrecking the door's closing mechanism. And we will storm it and take our plunder and be gone before the next flyer comes over. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ed, the Red Warriors might be able to fly, but their stupidity is that they keep regular schedules. Garkofan snorted, along with all the other warriors, but Kaz remained silent. Schedules, he thought, were perfectly sensible things. He had to admit, however, if you were guarding something valuable, it was foolish to be predictable. The Red Warriors, if indeed they had built this great building, had assumed the impenetrable walls were all the protection they needed. The flyer patrols were an afterthought, one the Warhoons would exploit. Avkanan's men were nervous about using explosives. They, like most green men, were a uniformly excellent marksman with a rifle, but preferred fighting hand-to-hand with swords. Real weapons for real warriors, they said. Back in the wagon, Garkofan and Kaz set to building a powerful explosive and fitting a timer to it, while Av Kanan paced around, muttering about time. If time was of such essence, Kaz thought, then maybe Av Kanan shouldn't have sent for them at the last minute. But it was not in the nature of Warhoons to plan too far ahead. A strange warrior once fought a great fight in the arena when Kaz was just out of the egg. Kaz thought about him often, and was thinking about him as he worked on the bomb. The man had been neither green nor red, but almost colorless. Someone had said the stranger called himself Jan Carter, an odd enough-sounding name. Normally, Kaz paid no attention to the bloodshed out in the arena. He had too many rifles to fix. But seeing this oddly colored stranger, who must have traveled from some far corner of Barsoom, had set Kaz's imagination ablaze. How big was Barsoom? What other people roamed its surface, traversed the great canals that stretched forever over the horizon? What other great ruined cities lay littered under the two moons? And what secrets might they give Kaz? He thought about that a lot. It was a shame that the Carter man had died from the blade of a Zodangan. Kaz had hoped the man might live so that he could visit his cell and ask him where he came from. There was a rumor that Carter was now a prince of Helium and had been the one who led the Thark attack on the Zodangans, but who knew if that was true? Kaz showed the timer mechanism to one of Avkanan's bolder warriors and gave him the ball-shaped explosive. It will roll without harming the timer, Kaz said. He'd buried the timer into the heart of the explosive and wrapped it all in husk leaf shaped into a ball. The bomb was crudely made of Zodangan explosives, probably stolen by Tharks and traded northward. Kaz always questioned anyone who traded things with him, trying to ascertain where they came from. It was a shame, he thought, that Warhoon couldn't make explosives of their own. They could use them to divert canals, blow open ancient tunnels, and explore old ruins, or just help fight enemy clans. But Warhoons were uninterested in science and building things, so there was no chance of it. 
Avkanan's warrior slowly crawled along the ground and hid behind a bush, and waited, and waited. The night wore on, and Kaz found himself wanting to drift off and sleep. But he wanted to see what was coming, and no one had cuffed him and ordered him back to the wagon, so he forced himself to stay alert. And then it happened. A crack of light broke out from a cut in the wall as the door slowly opened. In the light, a frail old red warrior slowly walked out. He looked up at the moons and bowed to them, and then took in a deep breath of air with what looked like great satisfaction. The moment the red turned his back, the hiding warrior sprinted forward. As he threw the bomb, the old man half-turned, saw him, and moved to run back inside. That was when a rope Kaz hadn't noticed on the ground leapt up, the noose catching the old man by the foot. On the other end of the rope, Warhoon warriors pulled quickly and dragged the old man away from the building. The door began shutting automatically, an emergency reaction, but the bomb made it inside just before it snapped shut. Nothing happened for a long moment. Then, just as Av Kanan turned toward Kaz, fury on his face, a distant thud indicated that it had worked. A faint trickle of smoke leaked out from around the door, and the Warhoons cheered. But that cheer died soon enough as they approached the door and tried to force it open. Kaz swallowed nervously. This was not good. The old man on the ground laughed. There is no explosion on Barsoom that could break that door, or even those walls, you fools. Avkanan's attention flicked away from Kaz, and Kaz felt a surge of relief. Very carefully, and so as not to draw attention, he stepped back as Avkanan stalked over to the old man. How do we get it inside? Avkanan demanded. You can't, was the reply. I am the keeper of the plant, and I will not let the likes of you in, he spat. Avkanan hit him, and Kaz heard the man's brittle old ribs crack. He screamed in pain. They always did, but Avkanan was just getting started. The beating continued, and Kaz wondered how the old man was able to take so much of it. What is inside? Avkanan finally asked, bent close to the old man's crumpled face. The most precious thing you can imagine, the keeper of the complex said, and he laughed. Avkanan snarled and struck him with a tremendous punch to the side of his head. The old man lay still on the ground. The warriors left him there and then returned to the door, but nothing would budge it. Flyers are approaching, Avkanan said, and ordered that the old man be thrown in the wagon with Garkofan and Kaz. At least your services will be of some use. When the old man awakes, interrogate him. We must find a way in. They fled for the hills where the valleys and caves could hide them from the eyes in the sky. At midday, the old man woke up, groaning. Kaz sat with him as he thought it best to keep himself hidden in the wagon, away from Avkanan's fury. Kaz gave the red man sustenance as they had stopped by several mantalia and milked the plants. The old man thanked him, and then Kaz asked him how they could get inside the building. You cannot, the man said. The doors will sense duress from any of us if you force us to open them. It is a safety protocol. But what is inside, Kaz asked, dreaming of amazing magical things. The most precious thing in all Barsoom, the old man insisted. Air. He had, Kaz concluded, obviously been hit on the head too hard. When they'd found shelter from the flyers, Kaz's fears became realized as Avkanan pulled him out of the wagon and threw him out into the center of a circle of many warriors. The bomb failed, he said. I do not tolerate failure. Kaz looked up at him. The bomb had been the most powerful anyone in Warhoon could have built, better than anything Garkofan could have built. That's why Garkofan hadn't tried to do this, because he couldn't do it. Only he, Kaz, possessed the necessary skills. Yet now his master stood quietly in the circle, saying nothing in Kaz's defense. Avkanan was either going to beat him unconscious for failure, or kill him. Kaz wasn't sure which to hope for. 
Wait, Kaz said, thinking quickly. He said us when he woke up. Avkanan hesitated. What do you mean? Perhaps he has an apprentice, as I am apprentice to Garkofan. Still in the building, or maybe elsewhere. The more of them we can capture, the more we can find out. Maybe the apprentice will tell us something the old one won't. Garkofan, nervous about having his name dragged into the matter at hand, glared at Kaz. But Avkanan thought about it, and then nodded and lowered his four hands. We will get the old man to tell us where his others are, he said, and then see what they will tell us. Kaz let out a deep breath. He'd escaped something horrible. For now. Kaz's suggestion set into motion more beatings of the old man, who eventually confessed to having an apprentice living near Helium. So Avkanan had left them with the old man, who Garkofan said was dying from his beatings. There was nothing they could do for him, but proceed slowly and carefully on their journey back to Warhoon. This way, they would get out of Avkanan's way, and hopefully he would soon forget his wrath, as Garkofan and Kaz hid in the ruins of Warhoon and in the crowds of the arena. If we are lucky, Garkofan said, the Red Warriors will spot him and kill him and we'll be rid of him. Kaz did not reply, but secretly agreed. On the fourth day of the journey, Kaz found the old man playing with a piece of machinery he'd kept hidden away, holding it up and frowning. Is your wagon airtight? the old man asked. No. Kaz pointed at all the grills and openings throughout. Then we are in great danger. All of Barsoom. What do you mean? What danger? Kaz Jalot asked. I am the keeper of the atmosphere plant that you abducted me from, said the old man slowly. Kaz feared that he was further along toward death than life. It has been my life's work. I have guarded it zealously, but in my old age I grew too fond of walking outside to remind myself how beautiful it was to stand outside and taste the world. It is my own fault. I have grown weak in my old age and should have retired long ago. You know Barsoom is a dying world. The great city makers left us long ago. We are fewer in numbers, and we've forgotten much of our history and technology. Our atmosphere is dying as well, but this plant pumps enough air into the crosswinds out here in the northwest to circulate around the world, and it lets us keep living. Without it, we will slowly suffocate and die. And now my instruments tell me the quality of air has dropped slightly. Your savage warriors, who threw that bomb inside after kidnapping me, have destroyed one of the great machines inside. I must get back there to fix it. Do you understand? Garkofan and Kaz argued about it for an entire day. Garkofan even insisted on seeing the device and forced the dying keeper to explain everything about it, looking on as the keeper tested the air. Still, he was suspicious. Let us think about this, Kaz told him. Why would he lie, only to be taken back to a treasure hold if he is dying? He seems scared, and that device... It could be anything, Garkofan sniffed. But what if he is right, Kaz insisted. But what if he is lying? Kaz held out his hands. If we are right and he is lying, then it only costs us something small to change our course and go check. If he is right, then we may as well all die right now. We're already well into our journey, Garkofan protested. Kaz further considered the matter, then said, Suppose he is wrong and is hiding a treasure. If we go with him and he takes us into a treasure hold, then we will succeed in gaining the plunder. If he speaks the truth, then we will save all Barsoom. If he lies and we continue to war Hoon, then we lose another chance at the treasure. If he speaks true and we continue down this path, we may lose the very air we breathe. Garkofan grumbled, but finally saw the wisdom in Kaz's argument and turned them around. Kaz wanted them to hurry, but Garkofan could only drive the thoats to pull the wagon so fast. He took a deep breath. Did it seem less filling? He wasn't sure. 
He could just be imagining it, driven to fear by the ravings of an old man who was dying from the beating Avkanan gave him. The keeper died when they were within sight of the canal's tall trees. As his last breath rattled from his lips, Kaz groaned. They'd been so close. Our only hope now is that Avkanan has the apprentice, and that maybe he can help us, Garkofan said. They buried the keeper in the shadow of the structure he had spent most of his life guarding, and then hid from the flyer patrols in the nearby hills. We'll wait for Avkanan to come back and try the doors again, Garkofan said. Kaz noticed the old warrior taking deeper breaths. How long did they have before the bad air would overcome them? He wished he knew more about machines than he did. He wished he knew more about everything. They spent the next days in a cave, quietly waiting and doing something Kaz never thought he'd do, hoping for Avkanan to return. Three days after the death of the old man, with no sign yet of Avkanan, the flyers that had been circling overhead descended from the skies in a panic. Scouts surrounded the building, and more flyers than Kaz had even realized existed flocked nearby and then landed along the sides of the canal. They know something's wrong, Kaz told Garkofan. And by now, even Garkofan had to admit there was something wrong with the air. They were both breathing more heavily, and not just because they were climbing around so much. There was something wrong with the very air of Barsoom itself. The old man had been right. I did this, Kaz whispered sadly to Garkofan. This is all my fault. I used those Zudangan explosives. They must have broken something inside the atmosphere plant. In the end, he thought, all of Barsoom would be a ruin because of him. Avkanan would have killed you had you refused, and then I would have built the bomb, Garkofan said. But Kaz thought Garkofan wouldn't have made one as powerful as his and maybe the atmosphere factory would still be working. Avkanan returned after another four days in a foul mood, having evaded the Red Warriors of Helium and tracked across the sacked city of Zodanga. They'd moved so quickly, they had left exhausted and dying thoats in their wake. The apprentice, Kaz asked. It was of no use, Avkanan said. We could torture no useful information out of him, so we threw him into the pits beneath his own home. Kaz slumped. You fool, he said before he realized the words were out of his mouth. Avkanan hit Kaz so hard he was knocked off his feet and sent flying backward, and when Kaz looked up, the Jedwar had his sword out and was ready to kill him. But Garf Kofan suddenly leapt in front of Avkanan, and the Jedwar's blade struck Garkofan, who grabbed hold of it. Listen to Kaz, Jedwar, he gasped. You must listen. And as Garkofan kneeled before Avkanan, slowly dying but never letting go of the sword with his three hands, Kaz told Avkanan everything the keeper had told him. But the Jedwar only laughed and jerked his sword out of Garkofan's stomach, leaving him to die on the ground. You are the fool, Tinker, if you think I'll believe something is wrong with the air. It is air, little one. The air always has been. It will always be. Kaz bit his lip as Avkanan walked away. Did the Jedwar not use his mind? Didn't he understand the consequences if he was wrong? He wished he were strong enough to stand to fight Avkanan, but Kaz well knew what the consequences would be if he tried. Avkanan would skewer him even faster than he had Garkofan. Avkanan was studying the collection of red warriors that had grown around the building. They kept arriving by flyers, and soon a crowd of them gathered around the door. One of Avkanan's warriors had forced Kaz to watch the reds. What are they doing? They're trying to get in, aren't they? Yes, Kaz said. But don't you think it's strange that they can't? Maybe this place is as important as the keeper claimed. He would have said more, but he was knocked back with a solid punch. Stop your mewling, idiot, Avkanan snarled. There is something more important in there. Get out of here. 
Get your wagon and go back to Warhoon. You are of no use. Go before I change my mind and kill you. No use, Cast thought, stumbling out of the camp. No use? Who fixed their guns? Who made sure their electric rangefinders worked? Who fixed the grips on their swords? They came to him when their things were broken, but they despised him because he didn't share their bloodthirst, their desire for plunder, and their hatred of outsiders. They made fun of his curiosity. They cuffed him for his questions. No use. Garkofan was dead, at Avkanan's own hands. And now they sent Kaz away, too. How many other tinkers were there in Warhoon? Not enough to keep the broken equipment the warriors depended on going. Without the likes of Kaz, eventually Avkanan and his kind would have nothing but sharpened sticks and stones to kill one another with. And then the Tharks or some other tribe would sweep in and destroy the Warhoons. They'd be cutting their own throats if they kicked Kaz out. They'd be cutting all of Barsoom's throats, he thought. Kaz did not prod the throats into snorting and pulling the wagon back to Warhoon. He sat inside, still, just like one of the old statues lying on its back in the ruins of Warhoon. The red men had flyers and good weapons, but Avkanan and his men were furious fighters. If they overwhelmed the reds, who might be there to fix the atmosphere plant, then all of Barsoom would all die for sure. And since they didn't even realize they were being watched, they were vulnerable. Kaz was a tinker, but even he knew the effect of a surprise attack would have on the men gathered around the plant. They'd be overcome, maybe slaughtered. Kaz looked over at one of Garkofan's long, wicked swords, which he kept mounted over his workbench. If there was to be a future, the men who could build machines, the men who could create things, must triumph, and those who gathered unawares by the atmosphere plant needed all the help they could get if they were to survive Avkanan's onslaught. Kaz had to hurry. Already he could feel that the air was stale and getting worse. In addition to arming himself, he would need something else, an edge only he could create. The warrior party spread apart as Kaz appeared, one of his repaired rifles in hand pointed at the sky. Why are you holding a rifle, Avkanan hissed, and what is that thing around your neck? He pointed to the hose dangling from a canister that Kaz had welded together. I'm here one last time to talk you out of this, Kaz said, not answering his question. Can you not feel the air getting harder to breathe? Like a small, crowded room on a hot day? Some of Avkanan's warriors shifted. Yes, they had noticed it, but the lure of plunder was too great. And as Avkanan had insisted, air had always been. How could people affect that? It was a red warrior trick, that was all. Talk, Avkanan said, and why the rifle? Because I'm going to shoot you if you try to attack them, Kaz said calmly. And by firing, I will warn the technicians trying to get into the building. And if you shoot me right now, that will also warn them. Avkanan blinked, working out the logic. He pulled his sword free and Kaz lowered the rifle to aim at him. You aim a rifle at me? Avkanan spat. When I hold a sword? This is why you are no real warrior, little one. You are a disgrace. Drop the rifle and truly face me with a blade. No, Kaz said. There is something more important at stake. They remained frozen, Kaz trembling slightly inside as he kept the gun aimed at Avkanan until the Jedwar lowered his sword. You are dead, Tinker, he told Kaz. You killed us all when you ordered me to throw that bomb inside the plant, Kaz said, so it matters not to me whether I die now or I die later. Already the air was thin enough that he found it hard to take in sufficient breath to speak a full sentence. How was Avkanan ignoring this? If the air fades, then it was meant to be, Avkanan said softly. Maybe it isn't our place to meddle with such things. We are here to live as we are here to live. Is that not enough? Out of the corner of his eye, Kaz noticed two warriors were edging away from Avkanan, and Kaz realized that they were slowly surrounding him. 
No, it isn't, Kaz said. There is more than that. There... One of the warriors moved too close, and Kaz swung the rifle to warn him back. The moment he did, Avkanan leapt at him with startling speed. Kaz couldn't swing the rifle back to shoot at him, and the Jedwar smacked into him so hard that Kaz couldn't see anything for a second. He was dead. He knew it with such certainty that he relaxed and waited for it to happen. But it didn't. Kaz opened his eyes and found Avkanan pushing himself up onto all his arms and feet, coughing and gasping for air. Kaz kicked him in the ribs and crawled back away. As he did so, he grabbed the hose and put it in his mouth. The machine he'd built worked. Air compressed and stored inside the canister now flooded his lungs. Kaz's head cleared and he could stand easily now. The two other warriors watched, not interfering. A duel, after all, was a duel. Avkanan focused on the fight again, his mighty leap still leaving him gasping for air, but Kaz had gotten clear and stood again. He fumbled for the rifle, looking to fire it and warn the red warriors, but Avkanan knocked it free. Even struggling to breathe, he was still stronger than Kaz. He raised his sword with an unsteady hand. This gave Kaz time to free his own sword, one of Garkofan's keepsakes. He blocked Avkanan's weak strike, and the two slowly fumbled around, Av gasping for air and trying to gain the strength to strike, and Kaz doing his best to stay free of the wicked blade. With each sword thrust, they both weakened. For Av, it was the air getting thinner and thinner. For Kaz, it was the heavy sword and his small stature. The warriors no longer stood in a circle around them. They'd started to sit down, out of breath and dizzy. Avkanan raised his sword with two hands over his head and began laughing. It was just air, he said. Worthless, useless air. When he swung, Kaz hit him on the head with his sword handle, and the confused Jedwar stumbled, tripped, and fell onto the point of his own sword. He cried out and then lay on his side, holding the wound and falling silent. The canister of air gasped and whistled and gave out. There was nothing to breathe but the thinning atmosphere now, but his ability to build things had saved him. Without the strength of real air to breathe from his device, he would have died instantly at Avkanan's many hands. Kaz staggered to the top of their hiding place and watched the atmosphere plant with what he thought were his last breaths. He watched as a flyer hastily landed. He watched as a strange warrior with no color ran to the doors. It was John Carter himself. The rumors were true. He wasn't dead. He had escaped Warhoon somehow and allied himself with the Red Warriors. He opened the doors, how Kaz couldn't tell, and the half-dead technicians ran inside. And then Kaz passed out. When Kaz awoke, it was to the sweet taste of fresh air. The Warhoons walked up to his resting place. Kaz Kanan, they called out as they offered him all of Kanan's possessions. By the right of combat, Kaz was Jedwar now. Him, Kaz, a Jedwar by right of battle. Who could have imagined such a thing? Kaz Kanan, he repeated to himself, a Jedwar of Barsoom. He looked around. That meant that these Warhoons were his to lead. What great things could he do as a leader when he returned to Warhoon? There were parts of the city that could be rebuilt. There were ruins that he could command be explored. He could turn Warhoon into a great city, a more powerful one even. But every warrior who wanted to prove himself would challenge him to a duel to the death to take the title of Jedwar from him. No, Kaz realized, they would not take his orders happily, because his orders would have nothing to do with blood and fighting and conquest. And if he helped his people become even more powerful... What would they do with that power? There would be more spilled blood and fighting, and it would steal him away from being able to tinker, to think, and to hunt for answers. No good would come of it, he realized. So he left the Warhoons, 
confused with Av Kanan's body and possessions as he led the Thotes and the wagon away from the canal and the atmosphere plant. There was more in Barsoom than just the city of Warhoon and its warriors, Kaz thought, more than blood sport in the arena or the challenge of battles. And for him, maybe, there could be more than just repairing rifles. Rumors said Tharks moved about in the city of Helium. Perhaps Kaz could pass as a Thark and learn the technologies of the Red Warriors. Or maybe he would travel farther than just Helium. He didn't know, but the air had never tasted sweeter, and the morning had never held more promise. And don't forget, <laughs> copyright is Tobias Fakel. Yes. <laughs> the nerve of the guy. Next up is our friend, our good friend, new friend, Paul Finch, with his Theatre of the Mind. Paul, sir. I'm hoping you'll let me stretch the definition of old-time radio for this article's radio show, Claiborne, as it was created in the late 1990s in New Zealand. And now I'm in trouble, because I just don't know how to describe this series. Science fiction, certainly. A thriller, yes. A soap opera, yes but with a supernatural ingredient. So this science fiction thriller supernatural soap opera takes place in a small town named Claiborne in the far north of New Zealand's North Island. It has a pub, general store, a petrol station, and away on the hill a satellite communication station owned by the American communication giant Kosla Industries. Oh yes, and it's the proposed site of a theme park called Maori World. Produced by Andrew Dubber and Belinda Todd, it's thanks to Dubber that this drama is available for free download through the old-time radio researchers. There are 96 episodes of between 5 and 7 minutes, 9 and a quarter hours in total. So what's this place like? Well, when Thompson, an American, gets a message telling him to check out the station as there is some problem, he arrives in Claiborne and... Jeez! Oh, man. Are you okay? I get to buy. I killed you. What the hell are you doing in the middle of the road? I could have killed you. Not to do that to you. Oh, great. I'm stuck out in the middle of nowhere with some crazy native. Okay, um, I'm looking for Claiborne. Do you know where it is? This is it. We call it Irirangi. Welcome. This, this is Claiborne? No one told me there's a big bloody theme park here. No one told me either. Hey, what are you doing in the middle of the road, pal? Are you tired of living or something? No, I, I was waiting for you. You're late. Ah, you're from the station. Oh, look, I was going to ring in the morning. I'll make an appointment and come and see you. How does that sound? I mean, do you mind if we do things the normal way? Fine, uh, let's do it the normal way. I'll see you in the pub in ten minutes. Don't be late. You'll be able to get warm. Kakite! Yeah, sure thing. Oh, hey, is there a gas station around here? About 100 meters on your right. Where's the sign? We don't need one. We know where it is. Then the next morning... I might head up the hill and have a look around the station. Talk to you later. Thompson. Good morning. Enjoy your breakfast? No. Are you driving up the hill? No. Oh, car trouble? Funny that. If you do go up the hill, you'll need this. What is it? The Tangal Tkaitsaki. 
Uh-huh. And that is? Uh, you Europeans call it a protective amulet. Mata, just what is it I need protection from? The hill. Fine. You are now. Yeah. See you later. Uh, Mike, please get that thing repaired as soon as you can. Is the car fixed? Oh, yeah, but you might scoop me. Give me the leads. Just make sure he doesn't find them on you. Follow him. But don't go past the foot of the tree. Well, how bad can things get? After all, Thompson now has a protective amulet. Well, that might be good against, well, say, dragons. But will it be any use against the global military-industrial complex? That's not all Thompson has to deal with. Some of the locals are not exactly friendly. I'm out of here. No, more like you're out of it. Fine. You stay here and look after my white butt from a distance. Man, I've just about had it. I don't know what's going on in this godforsaken third world country. I'm getting out of here tonight, and I don't care who tells me I can. Not again. Hello? Goodbye. Oh, man! Oh, oh, it's you, Mr. Buchanan. Hey, 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 don't shoot. Oh, oh, man, oh, man, oh. Oh, my God, you shot me, you shot me. You missed. You great bloody idiot, I wanted that, dear. What the hell's going on? This dumb yank just stuffed up my trousers to get old bighorns. I've been after that bloody stag for months. Sorry. What are you doing up here anyway? This is my private property. I figured I should check out the station. I told you it was fine. Well, I'm not sure my superiors will be satisfied with fine. Well, stuff your superiors. Get off my land. Okay, okay, okay. Just, just put the gun down. The fish shots. A warning. Okay. Okay, I'm going, but... You just wait. I'm, I'm gonna, uh, I, I'm gonna memo management about you. Right. Spoiler alert. From now on, I will be describing some of the plot points. So, what's going on? Yeah. Come on. Come and join us. What the hell is going on around here? I have no idea. Well, if you don't, who does? Welcome to Clayborn, Mr. Thompson. Oh, come on. Now, don't tell me this happens every week. It's just another tohu. Sorry? Never mind, drink your beer. That was so freaky. Well, what happened exactly? I was just going for a walk on the beach. I saw all these seagulls swarming around something. It was hard to make out what it was. I just saw this patch of blue. But when I got closer, I could tell that it was someone lying face down in the sand. Are you sure they were dead? Someone who was alive wouldn't let seagulls poke at them like that. I don't mind, boy. What's going on? Constable Bigby got here from Coco. He's having a look around. I helped put up that yellow tape around the crime scene. So it's a crime. Don't know yet. Who was it, boy? Don't know. He's lying face down covered in mud and crap. I don't want to hear this. Anyone for another round? Thanks. Oh, not for me. I might turn in. Wouldn't do that. Cop's on his way. Wants to talk to everyone. What do I know? More than you think. You know, you are really starting to get on my nerves. No one's asking you to stay. Oh, okay. Fine. I'll go talk to Karen. Thompson goes up the hill to the station, but the door has an electronic lock. What the hell is that? Oh, man, is this place on some kind of a timer? <laughs> so Thompson gets Frank to come with him to unlock the door. Frank, what the hell are you talking about? How could somebody have changed the access code? I'm telling you, it's been changed. Well, 
Only you and Helen had access to the station. Helen's dead, and you can't get in. So who changed it? I don't know. Well, Helen can't have done it, so it must have been you. Look, I told you, everything's been going haywire since she died. <sighs> but there is one other possibility. Oh, what's that? I'll have to do some digging. For what? I'll fill you in when I find out. What is the Maori matter up to? If that's not enough, a whale deliberately beaches itself. Karen, hi. What can I do? Ask Mike, he's in charge. Mike, what do I do? Take this bucket and keep dousing it. Okay. Just stay away from the blowhole. Uh, you need to keep it wet until the tide comes in. Oh, when will that be? Uh, about three hours. Hey, where's Mara? That old bugger. Mike? You talk to him. He's up there. Why not even help? Mara, what's going on? It's the prophecy. Is this the great child of Tangaroa that's supposed to die? Well done. But they're saving him. Waste of time. It will die. And then the CIA arrive. I'll be there in two ticks. Oh, hello. Are you Clive Moody? That's right. Then come with me. And who are you? That's more information than you need to know. Hey, let me go! Hey! It turns out the CIA agent has the access code and enters the station. The computer in the satellite communication station hosts an artificial intelligence named Delilah. You can do without the chatter. Oh, I'm sorry. I tend to carry on a bit when I've got a gun to my head. Well, if you don't shut up, you won't have a head. You're going to kill me. Stop your whining. Okay, okay, I've stopped. Please don't hurt me. Just do as you're told. Now bring up the cognitive algorithms application. Right. Oh, no, it it wants a password. I, I don't know what it is, honest. Delilah. Delilah. Here, guys. never seen graphics like that. They're holograms. Hmm. We won't need that virtual reality of it. What happens now? Come on, come on, come on. Where are you? Here, put this disc in. What is it? Something to flush it out into the open. I don't think it likes it. I already found me. Bullseye. That's Helen Schrader's greatest success. Cool. When I mentioned dragons earlier, I wasn't joking. Well, it's not actually a dragon, but a Taniwa. The Taniwa and Meta's ancestors are from another dimension and got here through a portal which Meta's ancestors managed to close. Meta's tribe, the and apologies to any Maori listening, the Ti Wenua O T 
Iriagri or something. <laughs> They're the protectors of the portal. The Taniwa wants to open the portal again so more Taniwa can come through and take over the island. The Taniwa sees the runaway AI experiment Delilah as the key to achieve this. The original idea for Delilah, as it was de developed at Kessler Industries, was simple. To do away with telephone operators and telesales people entirely by having smart communication systems that can talk to you, learn and respond. Even more secret than the commercial ac applications for Delilah are the military ones. This series was recently made into a podcast and distributed by the guys at the Podcast Network. And you can hear it in its entirety by going to the Claiborne website. Andrew Dubber planned to make a second series, but this never happened. I don't know why, as the first series was voted Best Dramatic Production of the Year in the 1999 New Zealand Radio Awards. And there is a lot that was left unexplained and unresolved, but the old-time radio researchers' distribution extras includes a document giving a full synopsis of the unmade second series. The 96 episodes can be downloaded free from the Old Time Radio Researchers website at otrr.org or from the Internet Archive at archive.org. Again, I, re I recommend getting the zipped version for the extra material. So that's the end of this month's Fieta of the Mind. The Mind. The Mind. The Mind. And Tony, that's Fieta of the Mind. Fieta as in theatrical. I hope that's piqued your interest to use the links and download Claiborne and have a listen. What's coming up next month? Giggling Goldfish! It's Magic Island from 1935. See if you have been, then thanks for listening. <laughs>
and 365 day returns. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. 